all around us. There is an unseen battle raging. A battle we are a part of. Even if we don't always recognize it. In the midst of this battle, we are called to be faithful witnesses. To endure. And hold to an abiding trust that tomorrow is one. And that today, no matter what is taking place around us, the king sits upon the throne. The pages of scripture are full of this hope. And while the revelation given to the apostle John is often mysterious, it offers a clear promise and a clear message to God's people. To those who conquer, our hope is sure because our victor is sure. Endure and bear witness to him, the one who sits upon the throne, the one who is worthy, the one who was, and is, and is to come. stand for the reading of the word. Revelation 10. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with rainbow over his head, and his face was the sun, like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand, and, he, <clears throat> and his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard another voice from heaven. Seal up the seven thunders, he said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and sore by him his living forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that, there, <clears throat> that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that is in the hand of the angel who is standing in the sea and in the land. So to the angel I told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat. Your stomach will be bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach made it bitter. And, I, told, and I, I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
Irene, thank you for reading that. Um, as we said, we were going to be in chapter 11. We're actually covering chapters 10 and 11 today. Um, so Irene read for us chapter 10. We are going to read chapter 11 as well later on. But as we enter into chapter 10 and 11 of Revelation, it's important to know, like these are really complex texts that um, over the millennia of the church has had many, many different kinds of, types of interpretations and applications uh, and, and with that being the case, we've said many times, like, that is part of the reason why so many churches and pastors kind of avoid preaching and teaching through the book of Revelation, because there's just some real challenges in the interpretation of these texts. Now, as we said last week, and I think it's important for us to remember and point out over and over again, that with these challenges, that we always want to maintain the unity of God's Spirit. Remember, we are one people, one baptism, one Spirit of God. Amen? Like, that's ultimately what we desire, is to see Him glorified. And so while we want to have really good dialogue, and we want to have really deep, prayerful study of God's Word, like, they're, they're, we don't want to divide on interpretations. And so some of this thing, you may say to yourself, well, okay, if there's so many different interpretations for a chapter out of a book, like chapter 10 and 11, like why are we even studying it? Well, here's the reason why, is because even though we may hold some different interpretations, there is some deep truths that the church can hold on to that we need as the people of God in our lives. Some deep truths where we're called to keep those things in our lives. And I actually heard it um, said or read it said, and this is a great quote from a book, on a book on biblical interpretation that I read. And I love how they put it, is that as we approach the book of Revelation, we should stress the theological and note the predictive with humility. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? That simply means that we want to stress the truths that the text tells us about God and what he is revealing about himself and us and this history. But then we want to note with humility how we believe these things are going to pan out, like how these are the things are going to turn out, how the predictions play themselves out into the future, because these are texts that both were and are predictive. Now, I say we're and are because a lot of times we don't know exactly where we, are, where we are in those predictions, right? And so they certainly were and they certainly are. There's things we know that have not yet happened. And so we want to stress the theological and note, with predictive, or note the predictive with humility. Brothers and sisters, I can't say this enough. That's my heart. That's the heart of the elders and the pastors and those that are part of the teaching team. And I believe that regardless of where you land on certain interpretations we need to seek to find agreement on those things and what the lessons that God has for the church in those texts. And so that's our goal. With that being said, let me, let me pray for us. So join me. Father, fact of the matter is, these are, these are difficult texts, but you gave them to us. You've given them to us for the edification and the building up of your church. And so, Lord, we want to ask your spirit to guide us and lead us into truth. I know I am insufficient for these things. We all are. But Lord, your spirit has been given to us to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. And Lord, we plead that he would be present with us this morning and doing that very thing while at the same time he holds us together unified in our love for one another in a way that allows us to then practically live these things out because Lord, I know that's your goal for each of us. And so Lord God, we pray that you would do a work in us today. We pray and ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, 
So as we get into Revelation chapter 10 and 11, I guess remember, um, as I've stressed in the past couple of weeks, what I believe is that we're seeing a different angle of some of the same time frames that we've already seen. So remember last week, if you were with us, I used the analogy uh, of like in a football game where they have the instant replay, where you see all kinds of different angles looking at different things of the exact same thing that happened, right? So one camera's looking at whether the foot was out of bounds. One camera's looking at whether or not he held possession of the ball. And I believe that's kind of what we're seeing in this. And if you remember in the seven seals that we kind of talked about a few weeks ago, there's the first six seals, and then there's this strange interlude. And that interlude is where we talk about the 144,000 and the great multitude before the throne of God. And then the seventh seal happens. Well, likewise, we have the same kind of interlude that's happening here among the seven trumpets, where we see that there is uh, there's the six that go on, and then there's this interlude before the seventh trumpet. Now, in this interlude, as with the one in the seals, we need to recognize that this highlights the protection of God's people and the delay of final judgment. Now, that's important for us to understand because we see that there's judgments that are happening all around us, but God's final and complete judgment is still being delayed. Like, we're still waiting on that. And while we still wait on that, we, as the church, are still here, aren't we? Like, we see this. I just happened to turn on the news this morning, or not turn it on, but look on the news this morning, and it's, it's awful. Like you look at the things that are happening in this world and all the difficulties that are taking place in this world, and, and we question, like, God, what's going on? And, and how are you engaging with the church? Well, these interludes are here to remind us of God's continued protection and direction for the church. So I'm giving you a little bit of a, a foreshadowing. But it's also important for us to remember that there's a delay of final judgment because of God's patience. Don't ever lose sight of that. I love 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And what a reminder for us, right? Like, why is God delaying? Why do we suffer? Why is there still hardship why is there difficulty? Why hasn't God just taken away all of it and just brought heaven about? Because he is not willing that any should perish. As some people might be out there in this room right now or listening online to this, and you may be thinking to yourself, like, I don't like the idea of God because he seems mean and he seems wrathful and there's all these hard things that happen and, and there's judgment against sin. Listen, hear this scripture Like, he is not willing that anybody should perish. He wants you and everyone else to come to repentance so you won't come underneath his wrath. That is God's heart, and we must never forget that reality. Amen? Now, this is true even as things grow darker. We believe that they are going to grow darker. They're going to get harder, not only for this world, but also for the church that is in this world. Now, here's the thing. Here's where we're going to head. I'm going to spend a lot of time focusing on chapter 11 and some of the specific things that we find in chapter 11. But in chapter 10, uh, I don't want to skip that. There's some key things for us that, that I think we need to at least observe and be mindful of. And so let me run through those key components of chapter 10. The first one is this. We need to see that there is still more to communicate to God's people. 
Right? That's what this interlude is. Like John has seen the seven seals um, go a place, and now he's seen the six trumpets. And you can imagine, like for him, like that would be difficult and hard. And we now are given a scroll from the angel to John. And what is he told at the very end? You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In other words, John, you're just in chapter 10. Now, he didn't know it at the time. But there's a lot more for you to prophesy, and you need to communicate these things to the church. And so chapter 10 is a little bit of a break reminding us there's more to be communicated here. Secondly, another observation is this. There are still some things that are going to be hidden from us, right? Like seven trumpets or the seven thunders. We don't know what they are. We're not told what they are. In fact, John is instructed as he's about to write these things down. He says, hey, John, don't do that. And we don't have any idea why. He doesn't tell us why. He's not going to tell us what's in the seven thunders. Maybe it uh, would give us too much hint about what's happening and when it's going to happen. Maybe it would be too hard for us to hear. We don't know the answer to that question. But here's what we are reminded of, that there's still some things, as much as he's going to reveal to us, that are going to be hidden from us. We are not sovereign. He is. No matter how much we study, no matter how much we look, there's going to be some things we just don't get, we just don't understand, we just don't see. You know why? Because he is God, and he sees all, and he knows all. And this is a call for us to be reminded that even in the midst of things we don't understand, trust him. Trust in his hand, trust in his ability to carry out his purposes out into the entire world and into the end of history. Next key thought of chapter 10, the message that is given to John, the scroll, is both sweet and bitter for God's people and those who may hear it. That's the intent here. And this is Old Testament uh, understanding of as you eat this, it's going to feel sweet to you, but it's going to be bitter when it hits your stomach. And I think that we will see this on two fronts. The first is that it's a sweetness to know that God ultimately protects and has his people secured. But there is a bitterness to understand we're still going to experience difficulty here. There's a, there's a certain bitterness there. As we wait as the people of God, like we would love it to all just be taken away now. And so while we see the sweetness of God's protection, we see, feel the bitterness of like, man, we still have to wait a little while. I think it's also sweet because as we gaze upon the final woe of chapter 11, and that's our hope, and as our hope has arrived, though that is sweet for us as the people of God and encouragement to us as the people of God, that is going to be a very bitter pill to swallow for those who are outside of Jesus. Like it's going to be very bitter for those who do not know Christ. And so these are some observations in chapter 2, and now I want to move us into chapter 11. And I want to walk piece by piece through this text. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles, keep them open to chapter 11. And as I go about, like, I'm actually going to call some attention to some things. I'm going to highlight some things. I would encourage you maybe to highlight that in your Bible. If you don't have a physical Bible, I would encourage you to bring those regularly to the church if you do have one. But if you don't, don't leave here today without grabbing one. We have free Bibles that you can pick up at Info Central, and we want you to have a Bible in your hands. iPhones are fine. They're great. 
but there's something about holding the word of God in your hand. Like, and I just encourage you to have that. But I want you to open up to chapter 11. And we're going to read chapter 11, starting just with verses 1 through 3. Now, then I was given a measuring rod. And so this is right after John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And he says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure, that's an important word, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the two witnesses. To my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Like here, John is now a participant in the vision. Like for the first time, he's being called to participate, and he is asked to take hold of a measuring rod. And what is he called to measure? He's called to measure the temple, the altar, and those who are worshiping. And I believe that this measuring is not a physical measurement. But for one, because it doesn't make a lot of sense to measure people, right? Like, that's hard. For two, we're not given the specific measurements. Like, it doesn't say it's eight cubics long or however many it's going to be. Second, I think this text, this first part of Revelation 11, 1 through 3, is actually an allusion back to Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. So you can read that this week. It talks about God's eschatological temple. What in the world does that mean? That's a big seminary word. So here's what eschatological temple means, right? In that big seminary word, it simply means the temple of the latter days, so eschatological means the latter days, the end days. And so we see that in Ezekiel 40, 48. And I believe that that is fulfilled in Jesus as the temple and his church and his people as the temple. This is very consistent with the idea all throughout the New Testament as the primary way that the temple is spoken of in the New Testament. Speaking of God's people and or Jesus himself. Look at it with me. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says this, a text you may be familiar with. Jesus answered them, You destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Well, what's John talking about? Or not John, Jesus. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about not the physical temple, but his body, the temple. It's a prophecy that you're going to kill this, and three days it's going to be raised up again. And this is an illusion that Jesus is now taking on that role of the temple, the presence of God, and that we then, as the body of Christ, are also considered to be the temple of God. This is how Paul saw this, and we know that because of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 6, verse 16, where he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, is he talking about a physical temple? No. How do we know? Because he says this, For we are, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Like this is throughout the New Testament where the temple represents now the people of God, the church, the body of Christ that Jesus is building up. This is throughout, throughout the New Testament. 
And whenever we hear the idea of the temple, we need to understand what the temple was all about in the first place, which is that it always signifies the presence and protection and provision of God among his people. And for now, us, as the church, through Jesus and the spirit that lives in us, God's presence is in us, the church. Amen? Like he's here with us. And we don't have to go to a building. We don't have to go anywhere. Like he is with us. For the first time in history, Jesus tore the curtain in the temple so that we could be with God. Like the fulfillment of this text that that God has made his dwelling among us and he walks with us. He's going to be our God and we will be his people. This This is what was happening. And over the histories, this temple is being built brick by brick. Every one of us is a brick. He is the cornerstone. This is all biblical language that the New Testament talks about. In fact, according to Hebrews chapter 9, the physical temple was a shadow. Jesus is the true. The physical temple is the shadow. Jesus is the true. The measuring of the church, I do not believe, is a physical list of measurements, but is to be understood as a guarantee of protection for his temple, for those that are his. And we see this idea, again, tied back to the understanding of measurement in the Old Testament. Does measuring something always mean that I get a tape measure out and I align it and I, and I decide in inches and centimeters what it is? Well, no, not in the Old Testament. Look at Zechariah chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. It says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What is the idea of this symbolic measuring in Zechariah and multiple other places in the Old Testament? It's the idea that God is measuring it out for protection and choosing and mercy and and his presence in that space. Now, truth be told, there are places in the Old Testament where this idea of symbolism or this idea of measuring symbolizes judgment as well, where God measures a city for judgment. But I don't believe that's how you could take this text in particular partly because there's a section of the temple that is not measured. Do you remember that when we read it? He measures the temple and the altar and the people that are, that are worshiping at the altar, but don't measure the outer courts. Don't measure the outer courts. I believe that what we're seeing here, again, and, and let, me, let me just say like, that, that these outer courts represent people, the people of God, who were given over to the nations to be trampled for 42 months and 1,260 days. Now, both of those, if you remember, if you bring those out, that each of those represent three and a half years. Now, three and a half years, I believe, symbolically represents throughout the book of Revelation a defined season of testing and suffering that is overseen and limited by God. So what do we see in this picture of Revelation chapter 11? What do we see in this picture of the first three verses of Revelation chapter 11 is this 
picture of God's people who hold the presence of God, who are living out in their world, in their lives, um, as living sacrifices, offering themselves as a living sacrifice on the altar of worship in our lives to God. And we are secured. We are protected. Our spiritual space is never going to be shaken. It is never going to be moved. Nothing can take away what God has given to you. Amen? But, and this is where things can become a little bit bitter, while his presence is with his people, and while he will never leave us nor forsake us, and while he will absolutely protect us spiritually, and while he will absolutely help us to, to be steadfast in our faith, and that he, we are sealed and that we will ultimately overcome and participate in the victory that God has given to us, what makes it bitter is the fact of the matter that sometimes there's no guarantee of protection physically. Like we're secure spiritually, but physically that may not be the case, but God's presence is with us. I was reminded of this just this week. I was reading with my kids um, out of the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Um, one of the articles there tells of a man in Tanzania who became a Christian, and he was at a prayer meeting with just another man in that prayer meeting. And some people came in and attacked him, and he was being beat with, or hit with a machete, and they were trying to kill him, and his friend died. And he said while he was there and in the midst of that suffering and persecution, he felt the presence of Jesus. God was speaking to him calling to him, giving him peace and comfort while he's being attacked with a machete. That's what we're seeing here. Like I, he, he believed in his eternal security, but there's still suffering that happens in this day and age. And, and so while we're protected, we're measured in that space, that doesn't always mean we're going to find perfection in terms of a beautiful, wonderful, suffering-free life in this world. This leads us to our first truth of this text that regardless of your interpretation is true for each of us. God's presence and his ultimate care and protection is sure. And circle that, underline it, whatever you need to do. But the physical trial and suffering in this day and age will occur. Brothers and sisters, as this world darkens and as the, draw, the day draws near to the return of Jesus, Physical suffering to God's people is going to increase, not decrease. But we have been measured. We have been brought within the walls of his fiery protection. And he is with us. He is our ultimate protection. And ultimate, our, our ultimate fate is absolutely secure. And his presence is going to be with us in the midst of it. Even if we are trampled on by this world, he dwells with and the suffering that we experience, whether it's cancer or loss or the loss of a job or a, a, an earthquake or a storm that levels your house, brothers and sisters, whether it's end times persecution that increases, we need to be reminded that all of that is overseen and it is limited and it is going to come to an end and God's people who endure will become overcomers. Amen? That's, it. That's what this is reminding us. Like He's there. This is so important for us. This should be our uh, main focus. Like, why is this so important for us? Because listen, you and I, we're going to have difficulties in this world. 
And there are people out there that would tell you that those difficulties that you experience, whether it's sickness or something else, is because you don't have enough faith in God or because you don't trust in God enough or because you haven't given God enough trust or enough surrender in your life. That is baloney. Look at how many people in Scripture, Jeremiah sawed in half, Joseph thrown into a well, sold into slavery, David run away from Saul for years and years. Do I need to continue Like, this is baloney. God never promises that this world is going to be this perfect haven of safety and security for his people if we just have enough faith. But he does promise he'll never leave you. Don't forget it. Don't ever forget it. No matter what the doctor says, no matter how much someone comes against you, don't ever forget that it's not evidence that he has forsaken you. You have been measured if you are Jesus's. You have been measured. So live your life as a spiritual offering of sacrifice for him and for his glory. And this should be our focus, whether this represents a physical temple or a spiritual temple, or maybe both, right? Like it could be both. Maybe there is a physical temple one day in the end times. Regardless, this is true for us as his people. Now, let's continue. Revelation chapter 11, verse 4 through 14. We continue to talk about the two witnesses that were given authority by God. These, and again, I'm going to highlight some things that I want to point out later on, but these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, and remember, a specific time of suffering that's designated by God, but it's not years, it's days, whatever that looks like, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed into a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like the new Christmas. Because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, circle that. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. There's a lot there. There's a lot of beauty there. So let's ask the question, who are these two witnesses? 
Well, many would believe throughout history these are two physical people that are going to be prophesying physically into, um, in the city of Jerusalem at the end times and that an Antichrist figure is going to kill them and they're going to lay in the streets dead and the whole world see them um, because of uh, TV and all kinds of other things that we'll be able to see all of that. And listen, there's phenomenal scholars that believe that. Eldon Ladd, who I've read significantly during this time, John MacArthur believes that. Um, there's a lot of people that believe that, and that may be the case. That's not the view that I hold. And here's why. Why do I believe that? I believe that this is, um, this is a perspective from heaven's view of the church and the church's role during the end times and during the church age, particularly our calling to be witnesses. Now, why do I think this? One, I would like to tell you all the reasons why, and I don't have time to do that, but let me give you a few reasons why I believe this and why it matters for us. Because remember, we ultimately want to look at the truths. So first and foremost, the idea of witnesses and the function of being a witness is given to the apostles and in turn to us. Jesus gave this reality in Luke chapter 24, verses 47 through 48. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. So the apostles are given this, this role, this call of bearing witness to all the things that Jesus has done and is going to do and what he's doing in their own lives. And if you remember in verse, uh, it was verse three, these witnesses were given authority. So given authority to bear witness. Two ideas in the, old, in the New Testament that apply to everyone in this room who is in Jesus Christ. So what kind of authority? Well, all kinds of different authority. The apostles are given the authority, as we see in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, over the demonic, over the enemy. In fact, it gives this, this analogy or this idea that they will be even bit by snakes and that they will not be harmed, right? So there's this authority over the demonic where the demonic cannot harm you and I. Also an authority through the Spirit to what is spoken. We see this in John chapter 16, verse 13. We also recognize in the Old Testament, in books like Joel and Ezekiel, we're reminded that there's going to be a point where all of God's people are going to have the Spirit that's going to come down upon them, and they're going to be prophets. And authority that's given to the Spirit um, with the purpose, the very function of bearing witness. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Look at it with me. But you will receive power, that's power and authority, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so here's, again, let me paraphrase this. I believe that this office of bearing witness, this role of bearing witness, this call of bearing witness, and the authority given to us to do that is for all the church. Now, here's where I think we can both agree. That's true, but it may also be true that there's two specific guys later down the road that are given that specific office as well. But that doesn't change the reality that we've all been given that call. We are all witnesses. We all have the Spirit of God in us if we put our faith in Jesus, and we've all been given the same authority in accordance with Scripture to carry out that call. So I believe the two witnesses is a representation of the church. And you say, well, why, why two? Well, because in the Old Testament, 
There needs to be two witnesses for an argument to be seen as valid. That's one reason. Secondly, moves me to my next point. These two witnesses are called the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which are not unique terms. You remember back in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is among the lampstands, what do the lampstands represent? They represent the church. They represent the, the full church. Not just those seven, but the church, the lampstands. There's two of them. And I think that the reason why there's two is because if you remember the letters, how many of those letters were to faithful churches? And there was ones that didn't have some sort of a, um, something against them. There was two. These represent the two faithful churches. The faithful church throughout the ages that's going to bear witness. You have the two olive trees, which I believe points back to Zechariah chapter 4, where we see two olive trees in the presence of God, which represent Zerubbabel, a royal figure who was called to rebuild the temple, and Joshua, the high priest. And so what we're seeing in this imagery is a combining of offices of king, priest, and prophet. If you know Jesus, guess what you are? You're a king, a priest, and a prophet. That's your office. You hold that. That God has brought you into that calling. He's brought you into that. And so I believe what we're seeing is that functioning itself out into the world as the church bears witness into the world. Next, we see these two prophets in chapter 11 pour fire out of their mouths against all who would harm them, declaring that this is how they would be doomed to be killed. That's an interesting phrasing. I believe that this is heaven's view of the proclamation of the gospel and the bearing of witness of his church through the ages. We see this exact same type of imagery in Jeremiah chapter 5. Look at it with me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Huh? God has given to Jeremiah a prophecy to speak, and as he speaks that, it's like a consuming fire. I believe that's similar to the imagery that we're seeing here. And so let me break this down for us. As the church proclaims the gospel, if people refuse to repent, then they are in essence bringing upon themselves the ultimate destination of fire, which is how they are doomed to perish. I think that's what's happening. We also recognize that part of the reason why uh, that we see this and we believe this is because verse 10 tells us and reminds us that what we often see with the proclamation of the gospel is a torment to those who refuse to hear it. Remember the story of Stephen? Stephen proclaims the gospel, and what happens? They cover their ears and gnash their teeth, and they run at him, and they stone him. The world hates the gospel. It's going to hate the gospel. And if you think it's hated the gospel in the past, as Jesus becomes closer to coming back again, they're going to hate it all the more. Are we not seeing this in our day? Are we not? We also know that some who hear the gospel, like it is a stench of death to them. They want to get away from it. We also see here a time that is going to come when the beast will come after them. 
These two witnesses, which I think represents the church, and they will make war on them and conquer them and kill them is the terminology that's used in Revelation chapter 11. But another reason why I believe that this represents the church is because that exact same phrasing is used in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, where it says this about the beast, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Aren't you excited? Some of you are listening still. I'm glad. Also, it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. We see this beast making war on all the saints, not just two of the saints, but all the saints. Also in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, we see uh, the horn making war against the saints and prevailing over them, or it looks like he's prevailing over them. Now, chapter 11 says that this is going to happen in the great city, and I don't believe that this is referring to the earthly city of Jerusalem, although many do. I don't believe that because the great city in Revelation is always used to refer to Babylon and Egypt, which stand for an institution that stand in opposition against God and Jesus. This world of debauchery and sin that takes on the same spirit of the earthly city of Jesus' day that sought to kill him, this great city is in direct contrast to the holy city, which represents the true people of God, which is called the bride of Christ, right, right later in Revelation. This is a picture that I believe represents that there will be a point where it looks like the church has lost. I don't think we're there yet. But I believe there's going to be a point where it looks like the church has been defeated. The kingdom of God has been silenced, and the world will celebrate in that moment. Because the torment of the gospel will be shut down. At least they will believe that it will be shut down. But just like with the resurrection of Jesus, this apparent defeat will ultimately pave way to the ultimate victory of being caught up with Jesus as we hear, come up here. One of you got that. Right? Like it will look like we're going to be defeated. It will look like the church is going to fall and the world will celebrate it and then we're going to hear, come on up. Like raised from the dead, I'm taking you to myself and I'm gonna finish this all off. We will be the bride of Christ, lifted up. Man, what a day that is going to be. What a day that is going to be that doesn't prepare for the final judgment. This leads me to my second truth for this text. Our calling as God's protected people, is to bear witness to him with our words and our deeds, knowing that it is going to instigate persecution and hatred by this world. And while they will rejoice oftentimes over our suffering, we will stand again, brought to everlasting life and victory. Can we hold to that truth? Like, we need that truth. We need to be reminded of that truth like, we do not lose the day. It does not matter what happens to your physical bodies. It does not matter what laws are passed. We do not lose the day. And this should give us unbelievable confidence to bear witness. These are our marching orders. You go out there. You fight this battle. You bear witness. And you proclaim the gospel, which is like fire coming out of your mouths. Like, you are the prophets and kings and priests that God has called you to be. Like, go be those people. Yes, it's going to look like they hate you because they do. Yes, it's going to look like at times that you're losing the battle, but you're not. He's with you. He's with you. 
I want to say this, and if you're a young person in this room, if you're like college age and younger, like I want to speak to you real specifically, um, and this is for all of us, but I want to speak to you real specifically. If you have not seen and experienced the transcendent work of God in your life, and you have heard him calling to you and talking to you and walking in relationship with you, it may be because you've not stepped into faithful obedience with him. Let me give you an analogy. How many of you have all heard of the Avengers? Please tell me there's more than five. Because this whole analogy is going to pot if that's the case, right? All right, so the Avengers is a movie series. It's all over the place. It's Marvel superheroes, all right? So I just want you to imagine a movie in which Iron Man, who's played by Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark, like Iron Man receives all the power of his Iron Man suit And for two hours, you watch Iron Man um, going about the prototypical workout montage in a movie. Do you know what the workout montage is in a movie, right? It's like Rocky after he's been beat. It's like for five minutes, you have to watch him working out, getting prepared to go to battle, right? And then it's over, and then he gets in the ring, and you're like, all right, like we're going to see him go to town. Imagine for two hours, you see in the background on the TV screen, Thanos, purple bad guy. That's all you need to know. Like wreaking devastation upon all of the world and the universe, and he's just in his basement playing with his toys, learning how to shoot his lasers and flips and, and learn how to like work the jets, and the whole movie is him in the basement working on all of his gifts and working on all of his power and all he has, and then the movie ends. You're not going to that movie. You're going to hear the reviews and be like, this was the weirdest dumbest movie I've ever seen in my life. And you're gonna be like, I'm not going. Why? Because there is something innate in us that wants to understand that we have been given or granted some part of the story around us. And so we want to see a movie where the hero goes into the fray. They go into the battle and they use their powers in that battle. And we love it. That's why this always happens in the movies, right? Like it looks like they're going to get beat. The hero is laying on the ground all bloodied up and looks like he's about to lose. And the bad guy, in this case Thanos, is about to snap and kill everybody. And then at the last minute, the hero says, oh yeah, and wins the day. Why do, we, why do we like that in movies? Because you're built for it. Because I'm built for it. We're built for it. We are not meant as the people of God to sit in our basements and work on the authority and the power that God has given to us. We are meant to take it to the darkness. We are meant to take it in the darkness and see God work through his people and see the spirit of God move and drive us and and see him be victorious. And are there going to be times where we feel like we've gotten beat and bloodied and we're laying on the ground? Yes, but he will be victorious. Don't buy into a Christianity that is all about making our lives better in this world while we sit in our churches and enjoy listening to good sermons. Go fight the battle. Be the witnesses that he's called you to be, brothers and sisters. Young people, like, go fight it. Fight it when you're not old and rickety like I'm getting to be. Right? Fight it before you have all the cares of the world and, and, and kids. And listen, even if you've got kids, you can still fight it. Like, this is our call. This is your call. This is who we're supposed to be. The second woe has passed. 
And the third woe is unleashed. The seventh trumpet comes. And again, like the seventh seal, its specific contents are unknown. But let's listen to what it is. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time of the dead to be judged And for your rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. I want to go back to verse 15. The kingdom of the world has begun, and the kingdom of our Lord his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Does, thank you, Kay, for clapping. Like, this is real, amen? Isn't it strange that this is a woe? Does this sound like a woe? Does this sound like a woe? It is, but not to us. This is sweet to us, isn't it? A man, the kingdom of this world has come to an end and the kingdom of our Lord is now here. You are reigning. This is not a woe for us, but for all of those who are on the other side of that trumpet, that is the worst woe they could ever experience. Because their opportunity to reach repentance and to come to find salvation in Jesus, it's over. And they're not going to experience the final judgment because the end is here which leads us to the third and final truth for us this morning. This world, which stands against Jesus and his people, you, this world stands against you, don't ever forget that, will become his and ours. Let me say that again. This world, which stands against Jesus and his people, will become his and ours. They rage but his wrath will quiet their raging. They refuse to listen. They will be judged. The time has come for the reward of those who overcome. What a day. Brothers and sisters, you and I will always have the ever-increasing presence of God with us. We will always have the assurance of spiritual and eternal protection That does not guarantee that we will have no physical suffering. But we will always have the assurance of spiritual and eternal protection. We will always have a call to bear witness. We will always have the power of the gospel to rely upon, not our abilities or our eloquence, but the power of the gospel. We will always see the gospel generate torment in some and hope in others. We will always see the gospel generate hatred towards us and Jesus, the more that is proclaimed as we bear witness for those who refuse to believe. There will always be an opportunity for us to look forward to hearing, come up here. We will always have a king, and he is going to return. 
We will always have a reward to await if we overcome. This is our calling. This is our hope. These things, these truths, they are truths for us to walk in and to live in and to give us confidence, whether you believe this is about a physical temple or a spiritual one or two physical witnesses or us as the church represented as those witnesses. Let us hold on to these truths tightly and our predictive interpretations with humility. But let's be reminded of these truths and I want to go by them again. Brothers and sisters, God's presence and ultimate care and protection, it is absolutely sure. But physical and trial and suffering, like they're going to come. Truth two, our calling as God's protected people is to bear witness to him with our words and our deeds, knowing that it will instigate persecution and hatred by this world. Don't be surprised by it. Let me, let me just say this. Don't try to avoid that. You can't. If you are preaching a gospel that doesn't make the world hate you, it's not the gospel. Let me say that again. If you're preaching a gospel that doesn't make the world hate you, it's not the gospel. Some people will hear that gospel and repent and come to faith. Others, it will be a stench of death, right? So let me just, I had to say that. It will instigate persecution and hatred by this world while they rejoice over our suffering. But we will stand again brought to everlasting life and victory. And truth three, this world which stands against Jesus and his people will become his and ours. They will rage, but his wrath will quiet their raging. They refuse to listen, and they will be judged. The time has come for the reward of those who overcome. We're looking forward to that day. Amen? Amen. So what I want to encourage you to walk out of this place with this morning is a renewed zeal for your calling as a believer in Jesus Christ. What he has called you to, to bear witness to this world, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You have a reason to go fight the battle. Don't sit in the basement. Get out there and fight. It doesn't matter what your age is. You could be the youngest person in this room, as long as you can talk, or you can be the oldest person in this room. Like, fight the battle that God has called you to. That's what I want you to take away with this morning. I want to encourage you as we leave this morning to take the takeaways and walk through these things, talk about them. There's so much in these texts that I did not even begin to touch base on, but I pray that this helps us to fix our eyes on our calling and our hope so that we do not get trapped into the seduction of the great city which would call us to stand against Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, um, there's so much here. And I just want to pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to see the truths that these texts reveal, these truths that they reveal about you and your character and what you've called us to. Lord, that we would step into it. Lord, I, I need that. In my own life, I, I confess that I don't step into it. It's easier to stay secure. It's easier to stay out of the battle and watch it from afar. Lord, help us to have the boldness by your Spirit to go to the darkness and proclaim the gospel. To be witnesses to all that you have done, to what you're going to do, so that many more might come to salvation because you are wishing that none perish, Lord. So may we play a role in that. May we in this church have a zeal for it. I pray and ask these things in your name. Amen.